Now for the reading of God's word. This is Psalm 100, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. We're gonna hear this morning a sermon from Alan in Psalm 100, so welcome Alan. Good morning. It's good, it's good to see everybody this morning. <clears throat> Got a little frog in my throat, so hopefully, uh, maybe, yeah. Um, anyway, let me just pray again uh, before, as we begin. Lord, we do um, thank you for the privilege and joy of coming together as your people to worship you. Um, thank you that we can come into your presence, that we can fellowship with each other. And um, today we're just celebrating this great truth of your goodness. Um, even as we just sang, what truth can calm the troubled soul? God is good. God is good. Um, thank you that you're good. Help us to grow in our faith in your goodness today as we consider Psalm 100. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Hopefully I won't need that too much. <clears throat> so, in 1988, I read a book that has been foundational to my faith and understanding of who God is and how I relate to him. Um, and I'm not talking about the Bible. Um, I, by 1988, I had been a believer for about 12 years and... and um, course, had read the Bible and had, had, had loved the Bible, um, but I read a book that helped me to understand the Bible in a way that I hadn't until that time. Um, and I'll say just as a little bit of background, I think my understanding as a believer for the first 12 years of my life was, you know, that I understood God, you know, I understood God's love. I understood the gospel in the sense of of um, you know Jesus dying for my sins in my my state as a sinner and need for forgiveness and God's provision of that through Jesus through His death on the cross and resurrection, um, His life given for me and my new life um, through faith. Um, I understood God as a God of love, but I also think I, I understood that my life. The life of a believer um, in terms of our, our discipleship, our, our following Jesus was really all about 
in a sense, paying God back for what he had done for us. Um, you know, our, my obedience, my following Jesus was, was like a way to say thank you to God for the things that he had done for me. Um, which isn't necessarily a wrong motivation, but I think that there is more to it. And I, and I um, through this book, um, gained a deeper understanding, I would say, which has been foundational for me, um, for the, really for my life ever since. Uh, the book I'm talking about, you're probably wondering, is a, is a book called Desiring God by a pastor named John Piper. Some of you may know him, may know of him. He's written a lot of books. Um, but he wrote one of his earliest and I think um, kind of most seminal writings of his was this book called Desiring God. And the, the subtitle uh, was, is Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. Um, so when you hear that, there is, a, there is a little bit of a shock factor of bringing together these ideas of Christianity and hedonism together. Uh, because it seems like hedonism is the opposite of Christianity, right? Hedonism is... Well, here's a definition, one definition I found. Hedonism is defined as um, the idea or theory that pleasure, in the sense of the satisfaction of desires, is the highest good and proper aim of human life. And we normally think of hedonism as, you know, seeking to fulfill our fleshly pleasures, our earthly, worldly pleasures. Um, we know we think and we think of the gospel as being opposite of that of, you know, of really foregoing our pleasures for the sake of God, for the sake of the kingdom. Um, you know, Jesus laid down his life for the sake of others. And we're called to lay down our lives, not to seek our pleasure. Um, it would seem but Piper in this book makes the point that the problem with worldly hedonism is not that it seeks pleasure, but that it seeks pleasure in the wrong places. That worldly hedonism is misguided hedonism. It's, it aims too low. Ultimately, he argues that um, we all seek pleasure. It's how we're wired. We're, we, we, in our hearts, we always, we, we tend to seek happiness. Um, we, we seek joy, we seek fulfillment. And the problem is not that we want those things. The problem is that we try to find those things in things that don't ultimately satisfy. Things that ultimately disappear. Um, things that don't deliver true satisfaction. Piper quotes um, C.S. Lewis, who um, many of you probably know, a uh, well-known Christian author. Lewis says, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex 
and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Piper argues that the message of the Bible is that our greatest joy, the highest good, the greatest pleasure, happiness, beauty, the greatest soul satisfaction that cannot be taken away is found in God alone. And that it's not wrong to pursue that, but that is in fact what we should be pursuing in all of our lives is the highest pleasure, the greatest joy, the highest good, and that that is only found in God himself. If we seek joy, pleasure, happiness, and anything else, we will ultimately come up empty-handed. So Psalm 100 actually, I think, illustrates this truth in a really beautiful and powerful way. Um, and I'm going to start with a little bit of uh, grammar or um, uh, kind of sentence structure. So bear with me as we, as we get a little technical here. But um, uh, the Psalms are, are poems. And um, there, there is, uh, we know a lot about Hebrew poetry. There's a thing called um, parallelism in Hebrew poetry. And Psalm 100 demonstrates that um, really well, actually. Um, when you look at it, there are, and I think in the original Hebrew, there would have been basically eight lines of poetry in this poem. The first seven are all um, imperatives, okay? They're plural imperatives. An imperative is like it's a command. It's a, it's a do this. It's a telling us to do something. And, um, and, the, and there, there's actually eight lines and the first seven are imperatives, but they come, they come in, a, in groups of three and one, and then three and one, okay? And I'll just try to read them to you. So just reading through Psalm 100, <clears throat> if you have it there in front of you, which you should, it was in, it's in the bulletin. The first imperative, and, it's, and these are plural again, so keep in mind this is, this is not um, meant for our, our individual devotion. This is community, okay? So this is, this is like a, hey, you guys, do this, right? Make a joyful noise to the Lord, number one. Number two, serve the Lord with gladness. And number three, come into his presence with singing. So these three I'll call joyful acts, right? Making a joyful noise, serving the Lord with gladness, coming into his presence with singing. There's, this, there's these commands to joyfully do these things. And then the fourth is also a command, but now it's know, okay? Know that the Lord, that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. This is something that we know, okay? Know this. And the reason that, that we have this know under these commands is because what we do is ultimately driven by what we know, right? What we think and what we believe. I mean, it happens all the time. 
Um, you know, I, I saw the weather report. I saw it was going to be a hot day today. And so I wore a short sleeve shirt, right? I didn't wear my winter coat. My knowledge informed the choices that I make about what I wear. If I hear that something that I like is on sale at the grocery store, I go and I buy it, you know, twice as much, right? Because I found out I have information that drives my action. And so the same thing goes in our faith, right? What we know about God, what we know about who we are drives how we respond to him, all right? So it's because, as the psalmist is telling us here, it's because the Lord is God and he made us and we are his and we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. That's why we, we, we make a joyful noise. It's why we serve him. That's why we come to, into his presence with seeing because of who God is and because who we are in relation to him. Okay, that, that we're informed by that knowledge. Then as we keep on going, uh, we have three more commands. Uh, and starting in verse four, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, right? Enter, give thanks to him. And the third one again, or the sixth one, or I guess the seventh in our long list, bless his name, right? Enter his gates and his courts with praise, give thanks and bless his name, okay? Command, command, command. Again, joyful acts, right? These joyful acts were coming into his presence. This, this terminology about his gates and his courts, this is temple language, right? This is, this is calling us to go into his temple, going into his presence, all right? So we're being told, enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his courts with praise. As we come into God's presence, we don't come um, fearful, Right? We don't come afraid that God is going to strike us down. We enter with thanksgiving. We're called to come with thanksgiving, with praise, and to bless his name. And then verse 5 is the great, the great foundation of everything that's come before. You see, there's, there's seven commands. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. For, for, why, why, why do we do all these things? For the Lord is good. For the Lord is good. That is the, that's the great foundation. That's the great, that's the, in, in grammar, we talk about the ground. It's the ground of the, of the argument that's being made overhead. The ground that we stand on, on all these other things, is the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. That word that's translated here, steadfast love, I won't go into it too deeply, but it's a Hebrew word, chesed. Uh, I love to say that with a it's, but it's, a, it's, a, it's chesed. And um, it's, it's, I've heard um, Old Testament scholars say it's maybe the, the richest word in the Old Testament, um, often translated loving kindness, uh, here translated steadfast love. But it's a, it's a word that, that encompasses um, the, the overwhelming love and kindness of God towards his people. And, and the psalmist's declaration here is his chesed, his steadfast love endures forever, forever. It's not a temporary thing, okay? It's not a flash in the night. This great love of God endures forever. 
and his faithfulness to all generations. So this psalm points us to the goodness of God as as really the foundation for our life, as a foundation for our relationship with God. Not just that we respond to him out of thankfulness for what he has done for us, but out of recognition that God himself is the ultimate expression of goodness and beauty and kindness and every good thing you can imagine finds its source in God. So if we want to know any of those things, if we want to know true joy, we want to know true beauty, true pleasure, true soul satisfying happiness, the only place to find it is in God himself. So Christian hedonism, it's not wrong to seek pleasure, to seek joy, when we seek it in the only place it can truly be found. Um, okay, where am I? <laughs> um, so yeah, so, and you know, I've, I've talked about this, I think last time I preached, so you can tell this is a theme that is big in my mind, but why are we called to praise God, right? Why does God tell us to praise himself? Is it because of some, you know, some shortcoming in God's being? Is, you know, is God insecure? He needs us to be complimenting him. He needs us to be talking about how good he is. Does God need... Um, our affirmation, does it somehow help him out? Does he feel better about himself when we, when we praise him? I think the answer should be pretty obvious that it's no. God doesn't need our praise. God is glorious, right? God is the happiest, self-sufficient being in the universe, right? He doesn't need us to praise him. We need to praise him to be who we are, to be who we were created to be. It's, a, it's, the, it's the correct expression of our relationship to God, of our relationship to the world, is that we are God's creation. As the psalmist tells us here in verse three, the Lord, he is God. We're not God. We don't control the world around us. He is the Lord. He is God. He made us. We are his we are his people. We're the sheep of his pasture. When we praise God, we acknowledge our place in the world. We're un God is above and we are under. We are his people. Created as an expression of his love. We didn't create him, he created us. So God's goodness is demonstrated in his call for us to worship him. That's an expression of his goodness. It's not a, it's not a taskmaster giving us some job to do. It is his, his goodness showing us that which is most beautiful 
and, and showing us how to call what is most beautiful, most beautiful. I hope it makes, I'm making sense to you because it's, to me, it's, it's such a profound truth. God wants us to value what is ultimately valuable and not to set our sights on something that will never ultimately satisfy. And beyond that, there's actually other, there's benefits, there's scientifically proven benefits to, to singing, to being thankful. Um, you know, science, people talk about how, you know, science disproves the Bible. I, I think science often proves the Bible. Science sometimes, you know, takes a while for science to figure out what the Bible has known for millennia. Uh, there are multiple studies that have shown how, how gratitude is good for us. There, actually, there are actually health benefits, scientifically demonstrated benefits um, to gratitude. Uh, I'll just cite a few for you guys. I think it's fascinating. A 2012 study published, by, um, published in Personality and Individual Differences, a psychological journal. Um, grateful people experience fewer aches and pains and report feeling healthier than other people. Grateful people, right? They have some scale to measure, you know, where you, where you fall on the grateful scale. Um, says, not surprisingly, grateful people are more likely to take care of their health. Uh, according to another 2012 study by the University of Kentucky, um, people who ranked higher on the gratitude scales um, were less likely to retaliate against other people, even when um, treated negatively. Uh, grateful people experience more sensitivity and empathy toward other people and a decreased desire to seek revenge. Another study in uh, applied psychology, people who spend 15 minutes before Bedtime, jotting down things that they're grateful for, um, sleep longer and better than people who don't do that. Okay? Just taking note of what you're grateful for at the end of the day. You'll sleep better, you'll sleep longer. You having trouble sleeping? Be thankful. Be thankful before you go to sleep. Thank God for his blessings to you that day. Um, here's one study in 2006. Gratitude increases mental strength reduces stress and plays a major role in overcoming trauma. Uh, study published 2006 in behavior research and therapy, Vietnam War veterans with higher levels of gratitude experienced lower rates of post-traumatic stress disorder. We're just figuring out what the Bible has been saying for 2000 years, right? Now we have the science to back it up. Gratitude is good for you. You know what else? Singing is good for you. Singing is good for you. There are measurable physical uh, consequences to singing. This is gonna be a little technical, but I'll read it anyway, because I think it's fascinating. Uh, the, the, forgive me, those of you who are in medicine and know how to pronounce things, uh, vagus, it says the vagus or vagus, Nerve is the longest cranial nerve in the body. It's connected to the vocal cords and the back of the throat. It's also connected to other organs. 
um, plays an important part in the parasympathetic nervous system. Singing stimulates the vagus nerve, causing the heart rate to slow, whereas anxiety causes the heart rate to increase. Singing causes your heart rate to decrease. So singing is actually prescribed by some doctors as a, as a remedy for anxiety and, and above average heart rate. Um, singing combats depression. Singing releases endorphins, the feel-good hormones that help combat depression is often and there is often recommended by mental health professionals. Singing strengthens the immune system. According to research conducted at the University of Frankfurt, singing boosts the immune system. It's interesting, a study, the study included testing professional choir members' blood before and after an hour-long rehearsal singing Mozart's Requiem. For those music people out there, the researchers found that in most cases, the amount of proteins in the immune system that function as antibodies, known as immunoglobulin A, were significantly higher immediately after the rehearsal. The same increases were not observed after the choir members simply listened to the music. Okay, you have to sing. Okay, we all love music. I love listening to music. But if you want the, uh, the strengthening of your immune system, you've got to sing along. Don't just listen. Okay, singing is good for you. God tells us to sing. And when we sing, we sing to God's praise. Um... Studies, I won't read the details. There have been studies shown that singer, singing makes you happier. Singing improves your cognitive function. Singing improves self-esteem. Singing's good for you. Why does God call us to sing? Because God knows us. God knows how he made us. God knows that singing is good for us. I want to focus a little bit on this command to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Immediately before where the psalmist tells us to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, he calls us the sheep of his pasture. So he says, you, we are his sheep. And then he says, enter his gates with, his, with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. And I, I um, some of you know Jim Elliott. Does the name Jim Elliott ring a bell? Jim Elliott was a, was a missionary, one of five missionaries that was killed in the 1950s, I think 56 or somewhere around there, before I was born, actually. Hard to believe now that I'm looking so old, but not very long before I was born. Um, anyway, in the 50s, there were five missionaries who were trying to reach this remote um, tribal group in Ecuador. And... Um, Anyway, eventually, um, in their reaching out to them, were killed. They were, they were all murdered by this group that they were trying to reach with the gospel. Interestingly, Jim Elliott, in his, in his journals, in one of the days when he was read uh, Psalm 100, commenting on this little passage, and he says, there's only one reason why sheep enter into the temple. 
There's only one reason. And that's to be a sacrifice. Only one reason for a sheep to go into the temple, that's to be sacrificed. And we're called to enter as sheep, to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. So I just want to mention, you know, even as we talk about the goodness of God, and as we talk about, you know, joyful singing and worship and all of these things, that there is an aspect to the call to discipleship that involves sacrifice. And for some people, like Jim Elliott, the ultimate sacrifice of your very life for the sake of the gospel. Romans 12.1 says, Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So worship can be singing and praising God and coming together like this, which is always wonderful. But worship sometimes involves sacrifice, giving our lives to God in a way that, that can be painful. Um, you know, the second great command, Jesus asked, was asked what are the, the greatest commands? And he said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second is love your neighbor as yourself, right? Loving our neighbor sometimes requires sacrifice, sometimes requires giving up things for the sake of others. Jesus said, it is more blessed or more blessed to give than to receive. And I would make the case that the blessing is in the giving itself, right? It's not, I'm going to give today so that I get some blessing tomorrow or later. You know, this is not Christian karma, right? Of do somebody a favor and they're going to do it back or, you know, whatever. The universe is going to pay you back someday or even that God is going to pay you back someday. Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The blessing comes in the giving. Again, because we are God's creatures, right? We are made in the image of God. And part of who we are made to be is to be giving people. That that act of giving, giving sacrificially, expresses our, our image of godness in a way that can't be expressed any other way. And we experience that, that closeness to God through giving. Um, I, I know um, our church, as a, as a ministry, we serve at LifeBridge. Um, I have to admit I've only done it once, um, unfortunately, but I know that there are many of you who go regularly, uh, monthly, and serve. And um, I believe for those who serve, the blessing of serving is greater than the, than the blessing of receiving in that exchange, right? The people who come there, they receive a meal, right? Which is a blessing to them. And we're so happy that, that we're able to, to bless uh, people who, are, who need a meal. But that act of serving, that act of, of providing for the needs of another is a deeply soul-satisfying act of service. 
that I think is a much greater blessing than the one who receives the meal receives. Um, here, uh, the story I just read the other day that I thought expressed this really well. <clears throat> and I'll just read, uh, this is a mother writing. She says, it was late at night and after we had dinner at a pizza place, my son who was about seven years old at the time and who has a debilitating illness and, and falls on the autism spectrum, saw a homeless man curled up in the parking lot of the Walgreens pharmacy we drove into. Since he still wasn't able to read, he asked me, mommy, what does that man's sign say? I replied to him as I read the sign to him, Dominic, it says, I'm hungry. And with no hesitation at all, he said to me, Mommy, can I give that man my pizza? Mommy, can I? I was so proud of him. And with tears at the brim of my eyes, I said, of course you can. And he jumped out of the car and he raced to give the homeless man his pizza. They exchanged words and then he ran back to the car with such joy and told me, Mommy, the man said, God bless you to me. And that night, this little boy and this mommy rode our long 40 minute drive home with a smile on our faces and a warmth in our hearts. So I ask you, who got the greater blessing that night? Was it the man who got the pizza? Or was it the mom and the little boy who gave? It is more blessed to give than to receive. Sometimes in our lives, we experience suffering. Not just the sacrifice of time or money or effort, but, but suffering in other ways. You know, whether it's physical suffering, illness, the death of a loved one, injury, hunger, whatever. Um, social suffering as Christians, um, relational suffering through broken relationships. Um, I'm, I'm in the middle of a, of a very difficult situation, which, which I feel like is a, is, has been one of the most difficult processes of my life. I'm in a, a relationship that was once close, but is now um, broken. There's hostility uh, between me and a, another, this person. And in the midst of, of the suffering that I'm feeling, the pain that I'm feeling, Psalm 100 calls to me and it says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Come into this, the presence of God in the situation of suffering with thanksgiving and praise. Why? How? Verse five says, for the Lord is good. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love, his loving kindness endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. This is the great promise of the Bible, I think, right? That God takes suffering, takes difficulty, takes evil even, 
and turns it into good. That's, that's what redemption means, right? To take evil and turn it into good. That's the Romans 8.28 promise, right? Romans 8.28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Oh, my notes got turned upside down. For those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. If God is God, if God is God, and if God is good, there is more to this suffering that I am experiencing than just the pain that I'm feeling, right? There is a purpose. There, God is at work. In the midst of, of this difficult situation, when I'm feeling mad, tired, depressed, discouraged, God is good. God is good. That's the unchangeable truth here. And I, in the midst of this situation, I have to stop and put my trust in God, my hope in God. I have to ask him to help me to see it through his eyes. I have to ask him to teach me what I'm supposed to be learning. I have to ask him how to respond to this situation in a Christ-like way. And ultimately, as we think about this sheep entering into the temple of the Lord, we look at Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus entered the gates, right? Jesus entered into the courts of the Lord and gave his life for us, right? If I were to ask you, you know, what is the most evil thing that you can think of, the most evil that has ever happened in the history of the world, my answer to that would be that, that God himself came to earth and we murdered him, right? Our creator, the source of goodness and beauty and all the good things that we know in this world came to earth to dwell among us. And what did we do? We murdered him. Is there anything more evil than that? I don't think so. I mean, there's a lot of evil out there. But that's, to me, the greatest expression of evil I can think of. But if I asked you, what is the greatest good that has ever happened in the history of the world? Would it not be that Jesus died to take away my sins, to make me right with God? Is that not the highest good that ever been accomplished? And so here we have this situation where utter evil is turned in to the greatest good. That's what God does. That's what God does. And as we look at our own suffering, pain, sacrifice that we have to make, we look at Jesus, the Lamb of God, who entered the gates, who entered the courts and gave himself as a sacrifice for us. If God can use the evil of our rejection of Jesus 
and take it and turn that into the means by which forgiveness is purchased, then he can use whatever suffering you and I are going through and use it for good. Why? Because God is good. God is good. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the profound truth of Psalm 100 and and this this truth that calms our troubled souls that God is good. Lord, may we build our lives on that truth. May we trust in you no matter what happens in our life because we know and believe that you are goodness. That you are good in all that you do. Transform our hearts and transform our lives by the power of your spirit, by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.